Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I remember one of the first things I learned after becoming a Christian was that I had to have my quiet time. And you've heard of, perhaps, if you've been a Christian for a while, especially an, um, an evangelical Christian, you might have heard of that phrase. And so often we shorten it to QT. So what was QT? You got out your Bible, you read a passage, and then you prayed. And after that, you felt pretty good about yourself. You felt like you were obeying the Lord and you wanted to please God. And so not only did we learn how to do this ourselves, but then we also become sort of this disciple-making QT people where we teach everyone around us, this is how you have quiet time. And that phrase, though it's never really in the Bible, we teach it as though this is exactly how it should be. And the one thing I failed to realize in having my QT for so long was failing to see the source, the power, and the purpose of having QT. And when you fail to see that, you know what happens? QT becomes enslaving. It's so often fueled by guilt and fear. I remember listening when I was in college, there was a speaker uh, uh, speaking about QT. And the speaker said, you know, on a particular day, she, she didn't have her QT and she got into a car accident. Every other day she had her QT, she didn't get into a car accident. Therefore, ergo, not having your QT means car accident. And of course, we as college students, what do you think we felt? Fear. 
you better have your QT or else you're going to get into a car accident. Something bad is going to happen to you. I don't know if you've ever experienced your devotional life that way, but might I propose to you that actually we are much more superstitious and magical and almost idolatrous when we think about such things this way. That to be a, a, a good Christian equals having your quiet time every day. And if you don't, something bad is going to happen to you. But if you do, guess what else is the case? Something good is going to happen to you. We're going to prosper. We're going to be really uh, sought after as someone who is more mature than others. We look like a good Christian. And if you have your quiet time, then you're going to get good grades. You're going to get into the school of your choice. You're going to marry the person you want to marry. You're going to have a comfortable life. You're going to die without any pain. Everything will be wonderful. That's not what the Bible talks about when it talks about the gospel. And the gospel is freeing, not enslaving. But anyone who has tried to live what I just described, that type of Christian life, knows how enslaving that life is because you're poured on with guilt when you miss, which sad to say so many of us do, but when we succeed, we feel so good about ourselves. And then on top of that, we judge others who don't do it enough, who fail. It's a really miserable life. And I could have brought up many different areas of the Christian life that we sort of process without even thinking about it, how we live this life of faith. The gospel is not intended to be enslaving. It's supposed to be freeing. Today's passage, which is actually considered to be one of the most difficult passages in all the Bible, is emphasizing our freedom. And it does so by looking back at this story, the story of Sarah and Hagar, and, and then their two sons. And Paul gives this story to a Jewish audience and a Gentile audience who are all trying in some way to process how do you live as a Christian? And the danger that the Judaizers, these false teachers have brought in is you need to be like Jews. You need to actually obey the law. And so you know, we've been walking along this journey with Paul to say, that's not it. That's not how you actually experience the freedom of the gospel. In fact, you're enslaving yourself again. And so Paul's saying, if you really want to be a child of God, if you really want to be a son or daughter, understand what the Bible has to say about this. And so then he goes into this, what seems like a very complex story, and so I'd like to unpack this by looking at it from three different perspectives. First is by describing the story itself and giving it its right context in Genesis. In verses 21 through 23, we see this in Galatians. Second is to understand this idea of the allegory that Paul says he is speaking from. And that's in verses 24 through 27. And then lastly is the application of all of this in verses 28 through 31. First, the story. I'm going to look at verses 21 through 23 again. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So Paul, let me just stop right there for a second. Paul's saying, you know, you're trying to live under the law. Well, 
listen to the law itself. It's enslaving. Do you really want to live like that? And here's how he describes it. He, he tells this story. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to, uh, through promise. Again, we're not going to understand Paul here unless we understand the story from Genesis chapter 16. And in Genesis 16, Moses talks about Abraham, who marries an Egyptian woman, a slave woman named Hagar. Now, here's the problem, is that first of all, Abraham had a, a, a wife to begin with. Her name was Sarah. Secondly, is that why was she Egyptian? If you read Genesis 12, you hear about the time where there's a famine in the land of Canaan. And so in order to escape the famine, Abraham escapes to Egypt where there's food. There's a problem with that. We know one thing that the Bible continuously emphasizes is that Egypt is in its own way symbolic of unbelief. It's a place where it's against God. And so one of the things that you're not supposed to do is to go back to Egypt, as the Israelites constantly wanted to do. So in the midst of a famine, God, remember, in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, God had made a covenant promise to Abraham. going to make your descendants as stars in the sky, as sand on the seashore. So God, here he goes, makes this promise to Abraham and says, I'm going to just multiply your seed. And then there's a famine. Question for you. Do you think God would have let Abraham die in Canaan due to a famine after making a promise that he is going to have these descendants? Obviously not. So what does that say about Abraham? This man of faith became a man of unfaith of disbelief, of unbelief. And in that moment of unbelief, he escapes to Egypt. And what does he do? Not only does he not trust God's provision and his covenant promise, but then he also breaks this, this pattern, this design of marriage that God had laid out in the garden for Adam. The two shall become one. It wasn't the three shall become one, or the ten shall become one. It's the two. One man, one woman, one flesh. And now Abraham not only breaks the, the, um, the promise and the fulfillment of unbelief, but he also goes and he takes on a wife, another wife, an Egyptian wife. That decision, we don't have time to talk about this today, but that decision impacts even events of today. So one sin can have huge consequences that crosses millennia. And so here in this instance, we have multiple sins by Abraham now being sort of laid out. And one of them was Hagar, that he picks up this wife, Egyptian woman. And now there's going to be tension, obviously, between Sarah and Hagar. Um, then we're told that in Genesis 16, Sarah, who still did not have children yet, can't wait any longer for God to keep his promise. 
And so she says to Abraham this. She says, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And so Sarah, and this is how sort of convoluted everything has become. No one trusts God in his promises. Even Sarah doesn't trust it. She says, okay, I'm not going to be, I'm an old woman now. I'm not going to be able to have a child. And so instead, through this representative called Hagar, I'm going to, I want Hagar, you to go and Abraham and you both have a child and I'm going to take that child and that child is mine. And so there's a lot of misappropriated, a lot of sinful logic that is taking place. So Hagar, the Egyptian slave woman, bears Abraham a son, and he would name him Ishmael. But then we're told, in Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that when they were, Abraham and Sarah, when they were, I love this expression, I don't know if you'll love it, but when they were as good as dead, Sarah conceived. (laughs) When they were as good as dead, Sarah conceived, gave birth to a son named Isaac. You know, she was probably about 90 years old. 90. Anyone have a 90-year-old grandmother? Can you imagine her having a child? It's hard enough for a 40-year-old woman to have a child, right? We often think that to have children is a young woman's sort of strength, ability. But a 90-year-old, miraculous. So by these miraculous means... Sarah gave birth to Isaac, who would be a child of promise. Remember that phrase, because that phrase is used throughout. So if you look at verses 20 through 23, the free woman was born through promise, meaning there was nothing that they did. It was just impossible. The only way this could happen is a promise. God gave a promise. It's going to take place. And that's the funny thing about God, right, is that we think, God, you promised. And when God promises something, he fulfills it. But one thing he doesn't give is, I'm going to fulfill it in your time. He doesn't do that. He fulfills it in his time. So this is the story that Paul is referring to here in Galatians 4. We're going to see in the next section how this story is more than just even the story of two women. The way that I laid it out for you, it's the actual events that took place. But what Paul says is happening is that there's even more significance to the story than even what I've just shared. That is to say that it's so significant because it's an allegory to our faith in Christ and our freedom in Christ. And until we recognize this and see that God's word from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, That one whole story constantly emphasizes this idea that there is a Savior. The Savior redeems his people, and he redeems his people for freedom. So let's continue by looking at this allegory that Paul describes in verses 24 to 27. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren, 
one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, this really is the most difficult section of Galatians. You might even, you, one can make a case of even Paul's letters, at least to understand it, because it has a lot of complexity to it. But it's so important for Paul's main thrust of his argument to argue against the Judaizers who are trying to say that Moses' law is in effect for Christians and that your righteousness is not just in Christ, it's also in obedience to the law. So please bear with me. We're going to dive a little bit deeper into this. I mean, I could have spent, we could spend hours actually talking about this, days maybe, but we'll spend only a few minutes. First, we need to understand this concept of allegory because Paul actually uses this word when he says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. And that word has been a real problem word for much of the church for so many years. The reason is because a lot of the early church fathers would often allegorize, especially when reading and understanding the parables. For example, St. Augustine, whom we know to be a a really rock-solid theologian you know, who understood salvation by justification by faith alone through grace alone. He really was one of the first early church fathers to teach that in line with Paul. And yet, one of the things that he did do quite often, especially regarding the parables, was to allegorize. And let me give you an example, because I, I think if you understand allegory, you could see why people might have a problem with Paul here. Because... Augustine, in allegorizing, say, and in, in understanding the parable of the Good Samaritan, he describes the man who is beaten and left on the side of the road. He says, that's Adam. And then the robbers, that's Satan and demons. And then he says, the oil that is rubbed on the man, that the Good Samaritan rubs the oil, that's comfort. Comfort. And the animal that the man is placed on is the body of Christ. And then the inn is the church. And the innkeeper is the Apostle Paul. Now, if I were to do like preach on the parable of the Good Samaritan and give you that, you should say to me, Sam, I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. Where do you get that from? And my answer would be, well, I'm allegorizing. I'm attaching meaning to something that is not necessarily there, but it it makes sense in line with the whole of the Bible. So that's, that would be the argument. But the problem with that is that when you allegorize, you can make anything mean anything. And then it becomes, well, can't you do that with the cross? Does the cross mean something more? Does Jesus represent something else? Does God represent something else? I think you get the idea is that allegorizing has it's a real problem to it. So I just really opened up a can of worms because now I just said, Paul's out saying, I'm going to allegorize, so why should we trust Paul in this instance? Well, I, I give you this background because first, it helps you to now try to understand what Paul is saying, why this section is a little bit murky and maybe a little challenging for us to understand. But I don't think Paul is doing what Augustine was doing with the parable of the Good Samaritan. What he's actually doing is taking the the sort of the biblical ideas, and sometimes we call it typology, or seeing types or different nuances that's 
spread throughout all of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And there are types, you might say, that are reflected as foreshadowing parts throughout in line with God's plan of salvation. Again, we, we've discussed this much in Old Testament theology, but I, I could spend a long time just discussing this. And I, I know I'm not going to be able to unpack that for you, what I just said so clearly. But I just want you to note that this, the way that Paul is seeing it is thematically that's attested by different parts of Scripture and actually connected together. And it's not just taking out of thin air, but it's actually reflected in other parts of Scripture. And that's why we don't see it as necessarily as Paul pulling these pieces and saying, well, this is what this means, and this is what this means, and it means nothing. So then let me go into now this very specific areas of what Paul is talking about regarding slavery. So there's two sections. You almost have to see it. Now, I was going to put this for you on screen, but I thought rather than doing that, I'm just going to just try to explain this to you as best as possible. If you can imagine two columns, one is slavery and the other is freedom, right? So that's sort of the main themes that Paul is speaking about, and he's been talking about this much, slavery and freedom. And what you're going to do then in verses 24 and 27 is essentially put down in one column all the parts that deal with slavery and the second, all that deal with freedom. And when you do this and see the parallels, you can see, oh, okay, I could understand that. So, for example, regarding slavery, you have Hagar. She's the slave woman. Second is that there's a covenant. That covenant is on Mount Sinai, which is in Arabia. Arabia is not near Canaan. It's outside of Canaan. It's on the way out of Egypt. You know, the Arabian Peninsula is where Saudi Arabia is today. So it's, you know, further away from the promised land. She has a son. This is still in the slave section. She has a son named Ishmael. And according to Paul in verse 23, this son is according to the flesh. And then Hagar is connected to what he calls present Jerusalem. And present Jerusalem is referring to the Jerusalem of Paul's day. Remember, the Judaizers had come from Jerusalem. And that was where the law was understood to reign and to rule. And so in Jerusalem, you have this, these people. And so the present Jerusalem is that physical, political, law-based, Mosaic law, Pharisaic Jerusalem. And then there are children of this present Jerusalem, meaning people who live under the law are bound by the law and are justified by the law, are made righteous by the law, by their works. People who believe that what I do makes me righteous. And as I obey God, I can please him by what I do. So that's slavery. Freedom is on the other side. So you have contrasted Sarah, free woman. Her covenant is a covenant not of Mount Sinai, but a covenant of promise, not based on the law, but based on promise. She has a son also. That son is Isaac, who, according to verse 23, was born according to uh, through promise. 
and she is connected to the Jerusalem above, not a physical geopolitical Jerusalem based on the law, but a heavenly Jerusalem based on grace. And her children are justified by faith through grace in Christ, what we know to be as the church who trusts in Christ solely, in Christ and Christ alone. So I hope you get that. At least you can now see the two columns together, and hopefully that helps a little bit. Now we're going to go a little bit further. Remember the Judaizers again. They're these false teachers. They came after Paul planted these churches in Galatia. And they saw the law of Moses from Sinai, that it's from God. And they saw that that law continues alongside with Christians. So when you trust in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, yes, that is true. But also, you have to meet this law for God to be happy with you, for God to be pleased with you. And that law is in effect always because God gave the law. Why would he take away the law when he gave it? And it's the way in which God is happy with us. So they also came and saying, I don't think they outright dismissed Paul, but it was always Paul did a decent job, but he failed. It was faulty. And this gospel is not just reliance on the cross of Christ. It has to be more than that. And your holiness is completely rooted on your own obedience. Obey the law, and God is happy with you. Do things for God, and he's pleased with you. Now, that should bring back the quiet time. You know, go back to that, the QT. Have your quiet time, and God is happy. Don't have your quiet time, God is angry. Honor your father and mother, God is happy. And guess who really likes to say, honor your father and mother? Fathers and mothers. <laughs> honor your father and mother, God is happy. Don't honor your father and mother, God is angry. And lie, God is angry. Tell the truth, God is happy. So we have this, we've created this two-tier system, sort of this two-column system, you might say, slavery and freedom. But most of it's slavery. It's, it's always thinking like the Judaizers. Yes, I believe in Jesus, but also... And there's always the but also. You can't be saying, don't do this. I mean, you can't. How do you try to live the Christian life without the do's and don'ts? You need those. What are you saying? That we can just do whatever we want? I'll, I'll get to that soon. So hang tight on that. Um, so Paul comes back. And as we've been learning, he's been saying, no. No. The law does not have the power to make you good and holy, and righteous. And to drive this home, he looks back at the Old Testament and sees that even in the Old Testament, the law could not change hearts. And then he looks at Hagar, this slave woman who represents the Old Covenant, which is based on a works principle. She was a slave. Her children are slaves. And And Paul says they represent Jerusalem, which represents the teachers of the law, that are trying to come in and say, it's got to be more than just Jesus dying on the cross. It has to be your works. It has to be something you do. And the Jewish uh, leaders refused to yield to their own righteousness. They they just didn't want to give everything to a crucified Messiah. 
So in this way, anyone who held to the idea that the law makes one righteous, good, pleasing to God, Paul says is a slave. And today we, we call that person a legalist. Someone who believes that something you do makes you righteous and pleasing to God. And what Paul is saying here is not only are they a legalist, they're not free. Actually, if you've ever been in a legalistic context in terms of faith, you know how unfreeing it is, how much guilt drives everything. And so your conscience is not free. It's never free. It always feels to be a burden to be a Christian. It feels exhausting to be a Christian. It feels joyless to be a Christian. And Paul has been saying this from here in Scripture, so we don't need to look back just only a couple of years ago. We, we've heard this since the very beginning of the church. But for Paul then, the children of Sarah are the ones who are in this new covenant, children of promise. They're of the Jerusalem above. Righteousness does not come from themselves, but from Christ alone. And because they know this, they're free. And this freedom has implications now and forevermore. Just to let you know, next week and the week after, I'm going to be talking a lot about what this freedom is, like what it looks like to be free. And to be free does not mean, actually, we get to do whatever we want. That's actually enslaving. And I'll explain why next week and the week to come. Because if you look at chapter five, which is where we're heading next, it's a lot of, that's the fruit of the spirit chapter. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Now here's the thing. If I were to say to you, and I'm, I'm really uh, you know, skipping way ahead. <laughs> but if I were to say to you, if you ever read that verse, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, uh, self-control, I think I'm missing one. And if you read that and think that's what it means to have the Holy Spirit in your heart as a Christian, and then you evaluate yourself in line with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, do you see all of that flowing out of you all the time? No, right? So then you start saying, uh-oh, am I really a Christian? Because that's not happening all the time. If we took chapter five on its own and tried to understand it apart from the law and all that we've gone through in chapters one through four, chapter five then becomes a law. But we'll see next week for freedom, Christ has set us free. I love that phrase. I hope that's our phrase for freedom, Christ has set us free. And I'll explain to you what in the world Paul means by that next week. So we we, we have to see that um, we've been freed from the guilt of our own sin and the sin of others. But here's the challenge is that we tend to think if someone hurts us, we have to seek out justice, our own justice. And we also believe freedom is to seek out justice in the way that we want. We seek out personal vengeance. The power of the law makes us think that other people need to keep up to our standard. And if they don't keep up to our standard, then I'm going to mete out justice on them. And I tell you, that is not freedom. That's slavery. That's enslavement. It destroys others, but you know, mostly it destroys yourself. Let me give you an example. This week, we're driving to morning prayer, so it's around 
me and Sua. It's around six in the morning. And uh, I was, so many things happened to me on the freeway. As you know, it's, freeway is a real testing place for my heart. And, uh, you know, someone was tailgating me. I was in the slow lane. I have this law. The law is if I'm in the fast lane and someone comes up right behind me, I always pull over because I feel like, well, I shouldn't be in the fast lane. If someone wants to go faster, that's fine. I should always yield. But if I'm in the slow lane, I should be able to go slow. <laughs> and if someone's tailgating me in the slow lane, oh, that's, that, that is bothersome. So anyway, someone, I'm going to morning prayer, by the way. Someone is tailgating me in the slow lane. And I was just complaining and getting angry. And, and then Sua said to me, you know, why are you getting so angry about that? And, and guess what? I got angry at her for not agreeing with me. I was just, I was just upset. I was like, and then, so now I'm already upset. We're walking in, and you know, the workers are working in the next building. You know, the dentist who is our neighbor. And I started thinking, man, if only we had a good contractor, we would have been in our building already. And I started getting angry about the contractor, and and then we walk in. And I, it was just, I sat down, I had to speak from Colossians, and the text that I had to speak from, it said, it talked about having perseverance with joy, being patient with joy. Actually, that was the phrase, patience with joy. And so I shared with everyone, you know, this is what I'm facing. You know, the, the reason why I had to bring this up is that I had the freedom to be angry, but do you think that was really freeing? That was enslaving. And here's the problem. First act of anger, it controls me. Then someone says something, even someone who cares about me, and I get angry at them. Then I look at something else, some, and it just starts building and building. I'm not free. I'm a slave. See, we tend to think that freedom is being able to do whatever you want, but we're not free. Actually, we're controlled by a depraved heart. And when that takes place, it starts going to every direction, and it, I can't even help myself. I'm actually a slave. No, we are most free when we believe we are saved by faith alone through Christ alone. When we're most aware of the depth of our sinful heart, and we are willing to run to Christ, who is our only hope and our only freedom. And we know we can't conquer anger or lust or envy by trying to trying hard. You know, accountability groups, they're important, but they don't actually solve the problem. Counseling doesn't. Reading good books, listening to messages, all of those things are helpful, important, but they do not solve the problem. The only when we know we are children of promise, where Christ and his atoning work is what gives us a new identity, a new hope. And when we have that, only then are we truly free. Again, I'll unpack this a lot more practically next week. Look at the two women again. Think about this. Abraham goes into Egypt, sees Hagar, sin and another sin, is somehow drawn to her for whatever sinful reason. Then um, Sarah, who acts without faith, and Abraham, who also acts without faith, decide to take matters into their own hands. Why? Because God isn't acting fast enough. Or maybe he's not going to fulfill his promises. 
Maybe God isn't faithful. Maybe everything about God has been a lie. And so what do they do? They take it all into their own hands by their own power and strategies and their own plans. What a diabolical plan. But they do it anyway, right? So Paul says, Ishmael is born according to the flesh. Do you see how he was born according to the flesh? Because it was all their strategies and plans. When from their sinful heart, not trusting in God, deciding they're going to do it on their own, they come up with this, unhatch this really strange plan, and it leads to terrible consequences. That is a child born according to the flesh by their will, by their power. And I tell you, we act this way so often. We might not do exactly what Abraham, Sarah, and and, um, Hagar did, but how often do we say to God, God, you know, I've I've waited on you. You haven't been faithful to me, so I'm actually going to take this route. Maybe we're thinking you're a single person. You're thinking I want to get married. Scripture shows us that you should, you know, we need to marry someone who, if you're a believer of Christ, to marry another believer. But we've been waiting. And there's no one coming, and so we say I got to take it into my own hands. Just going to find anybody, somebody. Maybe it's a job. Oh, I don't really like this job. And, you know, God is, I felt like God provided to me graciously, but I'm not happy and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get out of this. I don't care about my faith. I don't care about how it directs. I don't care whether I can serve or not. I'm just going to do what I want. So I'm going to figure it out for myself. There are so many ways that we take matters into our own hands and out of unbelief act according to the flesh. And so what does God do in this? He acts according to promise. When Sarah was as good as dead, when there was nothing she or Abraham could do at all to get a son, it was over. There was no way for a son to be born. When she was as good as dead, God graciously gave a son. Why? Why did God wait that long? Because they needed to be at a place where there was no other explanation but promise. That's it. Because God knows we always act out of our flesh. We always try to figure things out for ourselves apart from God. I don't want to do things trusting in God. I need to figure it out my own way. This is why Paul quotes Isaiah 54.1 here in this passage, because it's this song. There's a barren woman, no other explanation, 90 years old, providentially, God's grace. But I tell you, it is more miraculous that you and I are born again. We are children of promise than it is for Sarah to have a baby at 90 years old. If you think having a baby at 90 years old is miraculous, the fact that you are adopted as a son or daughter far infinitely is greater than Sarah having a baby at 90 years old. You are a child of promise because of Christ, God's son. So then how can you ever go back to the law as your hope? Oh, God is happy with me when I have my quiet time when I fast, when I go to morning prayer, when I go on missions, when I'm a pastor, when I'm, it's ridiculous. See, that's the thing is that 
Paul is saying, how could you think about going back? It doesn't make sense. It has to be about God and his promises. And when you get that, then you'll want to live for him. And it will never be about God being upset with you or more happy with you. You know God's always happy with you. You're always his son or daughter. And just like a son or daughter, they just want to do these things for the Lord. They want to pray. They want to read the Bible. They want to have a heart for the poor and the oppressed. They want to have a heart for the lost, global lost. Paul writes then in verses 28 through 31, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. What does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And Paul's saying, and I'm not going to go into the, the story in Genesis 16 because that just will take too much time, but the point of it is to say, just in the same way that Hagar and Ishmael were cast out, so too we need to cast out this idea of workspace righteousness. Like, it needs to be gone from us because it's so enslaving to think that way to think about God's favor with us based on something we do and I tell you every day is that battle why should you have a quiet time because Christ Jesus gave his life for you and you can never pay that back through a quiet time that's ridiculous he just wants to know you he wants you to love him he wants you to trust his word. That is a much greater fuel power for you to, and driver for you to spend time with him than I got to be a good Christian today. My mom and dad told me I need to have my quiet time today. We all know it doesn't work. It just doesn't. And mom and dad, it can't be just about you saying, did you have a quiet time today? Son, daughter, did you have a quiet time today? That's, that's already building workspace righteousness. It should be run to Christ. You know, remember what he's done for you. If they're a believer, that's what they need to remember. And it, there should be then a, a hunger, a growing hunger. And if you don't have a growing hunger for God's word, then it's, do I actually believe that Christ gave his life for me? That he's everything to me? See, that's what it's meant to do is the law is meant to cause you to question. What do I believe? That will be a greater motivator to actually having quiet time than someone saying, have your quiet time, have a checklist. You know, again, I think it's great to have checklists, but I don't think the checklist in and of itself makes you righteous, pleasing to God, holy, just. It's just an outflow. It's a tool. It's a means. The means never is the end. The problem is we always make the means the end. And so... We have to be able to do what we can to run to Christ. Everything else is enslaving. Let me just close with this story. Tom Schreiner is a biblical theologian. He tells a story about his father. Um, and I'm sure many of you can relate to this. His dad was a, a heavy smoker. And so his family tried to get him to quit when he was younger, a younger man. Of course, anyone who's perhaps either been in this position or maybe had a father or mother who's 
been in this position. He got angry every time they said, you got to quit smoking. You got you to gotta do this so you can live longer for your grandchildren. They'd be like, ah, just leave me alone. I want to do what I want to do. Well, everything is great for a little while until one day he contracted emphysema. Then suddenly you try to quit because you think, uh-oh. And he tried to quit, but he couldn't. Then he contract. then he got lung cancer, tried to quit, succeeded one day, then went back to smoking the next. Couldn't quit. See, initially you think, I get to do what I want to do, which is to smoke cigarettes as much as I want. But eventually you realize it's not you get to control the cigarettes. No, it's the cigarettes control you. And you're enslaved to it. So then when you even want to quit, you cannot do it. So at the very last days of his life where literally he's raw throat, you know, all the throat is open and everything's, he's still smoking a cigarette. Is that freedom or is that slavery? I tell you that is slavery. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And for those of us who think that, well, I want to be able to do whatever I want all the time so that I can be truly free. No, you're enslaved. You are enslaved. But Christ, he sets you free forever, which is next week's message. You are forever free. I hope you know that today, though. Now, let's pray together. Father, just thank you for the freedom that we have because of your son, Jesus. You have given everything so that we might be free in Christ. Guard us against this lie that believes that we think that if we do certain things, you're going to be happy with us or we're going to be good enough. But ultimately, it's not for you. It's for ourselves. If we're really honest with ourselves, it's always to say that we're righteous. We're holy. We are moral. But if we could only see what you see, we would see the cross. We would see the suffering and the shame. We would see the guilt and scorn poured out on Christ, who would become a curse for us on a tree. And through that comes freedom. When we turn and recognize, just like the tax collector, who says, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner, and then goes home justified. We thank you, Father, that you are a loving God. Thank you for your Son, for freedom Christ has set us free. We just praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.